to recent corruption scandals took over the front pages of UK newspapers. The first involved the UK's current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who allegedly received money from a donor of the Conservative Party in order to refurbish his government flat. The second one, Boris Johnson's predecessor, former Prime Minister David Cameron, whose lobbying efforts on behalf of a finance firm involved text messages and meetings with government ministers that seemed to highlight all too well worries of a revolving door between government and private business. In the aftermath of these revelations, there were aspersions cast on the moral character of the two men in question, as well as calls to change the law so that such behaviour became more clearly illegal. But this approach focuses on corruption as a moral failure of individuals and as a problem of legal loopholes, problems to be fixed by tighter laws and more ethical political leaders. But philosophers didn't always think of corruption in these terms. Both Plato and Aristotle thought of the corruption of government as a structural problem linked to the inevitable decay of a constitution a decay that all things are bound to by natural law. So what do we have to learn from the ancients when it comes to thinking about the corruption of our own political system? Since corruption doesn't seem to go away by just electing different leaders, might it be fixed by rethinking our constitutional foundations? And what did Machiavelli mean when he said that an evil-disposed citizen cannot affect any changes for the worse in a republic, unless it be already corrupt. Welcome to The Philosopher and the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. Regular listeners of the show will have already noticed something different, the intro music. As part of some changes to the podcast, we're experimenting with a different soundtrack, so let us know what you think. The other big change is that from now on, we will be releasing episodes every other week, a necessary adjustment on my part to a new full-time job. There are other ideas in the pipeline about changes to the format and other changes behind the scenes, So stay tuned and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Camila Vergara. She's a postdoctoral researcher at Columbia University in New York and the author of Systemic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Society. In her book, Camila argues that our current understanding of corruption as a moral and legal problem that concerns only some bad actors, is too narrow, obstructing a much richer understanding of the corruption of government as a systemic problem. So, Camila Vergara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the topic of today's discussion, which is corruption, I just wanted to ask you a question, since you followed a career trajectory in the opposite direction than mine, first as a journalist and then as an academic, how does your background in journalism inform your academic research into issues like corruption? Well, journalism is the first draft of history, right? So 
So for me, this is the most important thing that we, when we're writing and we're thinking, we really are doing history and in the future they will read us. So there is kind of a, a connection there of a kind of an ongoing history endeavor. But also it's about writing for an accessible, for, for all the public basically in an accessible manner. So journalism for me has always been kind of a, a grounding element because for me, it doesn't matter if you write a great scholarship, if you cannot be uh, read by, you know, the masses and by the general population, then your all your research and all the energy that you put in it just fails. You know, it's it just, it, it is, it circulates in a very few, you know, minds and, and that is not really an impact. So for me, journalism is about the first level of history writing uh, in a simple manner, but also caring about the news, about things that happen here and now and not something that is just an epistemic endeavor and, and, and we're done with, right? We need to actually engage with the present. Yeah, totally. I couldn't agree more. And this is what this podcast is all about. And I also really agree with you about the, you know, being able to write and express ideas simply. It's not just about reaching a wider audience, but it is also about sort of expressing those ideas in the, in the clearest possible way. So since you're about to move to the UK in a few months, we have two recent corruption scandals here that are dominating the news or have been dominating the news. One featuring our current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and the refurbishment of his government flat above number 10 Downing Street by allegations go illegitimate sources of funding, party donors. And well, we don't really know at the moment, but we're speculating that that's the source. And then another scandal about our ex-Prime Minister, David Cameron, and his lobbying of the Conservative government ministers that he used to be in charge of in order to offer preferential treatment to a financial company that he used to represent. In your book, you say that corruption has been sort of conveniently reduced to its most visible and clear expressions these days. Would you say that these are cases of clear and visible instances of corruption? And if so, how come even those very obvious cases sometimes don't really have any political impact, don't seem to change anything? Well, for sure, this is political corruption. And these are the most visible expressions, right? People gaining, you know, uh, money or influence or flats for, you know, for themselves. And we don't know really what is the exchange because nothing is free, right? However, these are just uh, individual cases of corruption. And, and, and many, many times we cannot even prosecute them because we need to follow the money, as the slogan says, right? So, uh, if we follow the money, it's very difficult to follow the money nowadays. We have, you know, uh, tax havens. We have all kinds of ways that money can circulate and can be paid in the future, right? And we cannot trace. Actually, the UK is one of the most problematic cases for a tax haven and how, you know, the financial system really, you know, washes the money coming from outside and, and there's untraceable sources. So there is a problem there that is, I would say, almost impossible to really, really prosecute individual corruption if the people paying the money do it correctly. <laughs> and even then, we see that these cases of individual corruption are only because they break rules or they break the law. What my book is about is recognizing corruption as something to, that is um, done through the law. So in a way, the, the, the issues that we cannot put our finger on, that we know they're unethical, that when we know that something shouldn't be done, but there's no, they're not breaking any laws, really. So you cannot put them in jail. So it's how the structure works, how the rich and the powerful take advantage of the rules of the game that they have also crafted, right, with their own influence in the past, and basically allow for individual enrichment and their companies through the law and thank you to the law, right? So it's not illegal. 
So the problem today is that we have paired corruption with illegal activity while we have legalized forms of corruption that were before illegal, like, for example, lobbyists. Right, lobbyism and and campaign finance. Campaign finance at the beginning of the 20th century was illegal, of course. Paying a politician, you know, for favors to be delivered in the future, uh, of course, it, it should be illegal. But we have come; it is part of our system, so we have normalized it and legalized it. So therefore, uh, we engage today in individually and on a structural level on a corruption, but we don't call it that, and we have a problem. We'll get to that sort of structural way of thinking about corruption, but let's stay on a little bit on the kind of current way in which we usually understand uh, what political corruption means. You've you've highlighted two problems. One, sometimes what we deem corruption is actually legal, so you know it's hard to then prosecute people. But also sometimes when we're talking about something that's moral or immoral, the language gets a bit vague. And Robert Sparling, who recently wrote an article on corruption that I commissioned for the Institute of Art and Ideas, he argues that you know much of the corruption discourse gets reduced to kind of partisan fighting rather than substantive argument over what corruption amounts to. And part of that reason is because you know there aren't any clear criteria at the moment, or we don't have any clear criteria about what constitutes corruption. You believe that the way most of us understand corruption these days is, as, as you said, individualistic, is, is about individuals doing certain things, and positivist, right? It's a, around whether something is legal or not legal, whether someone's breaking the law or not. You've said a little bit about why you think those are problematic ways of thinking about corruption, but can you say a little bit more about what what are the limitations when we think of corruption in these ways? Yes, so the corruption these days, it is individual because basically we cannot put a system in jail, right? We put individual people in jail. So before the 18th century, this was not the case. At least it was not reduced to individual bad action. Uh, Today, we have reduced it to individual action that is immoral or unethical or outright illegal, right? But and, and we have tried to cope with this problem by plucking out the bad apples out of the basket. And this is a problem because basically we don't understand that the basket may have mold inside and have been kind of rotting. So whatever fruit we put in will rot eventually. So therefore, we need to kind of step back and basically zoom like a macro lens in order to look at how the system works, really. Because today we have naturalized, for example, socioeconomic inequality or wealth inequality. We, as um, famously Thomas Piketty has said, we are today at levels of such inequality as the ancien regime or the roaring 1920s. And we have a, basically so legal, so we, can, we, we, don't, we cannot say anything about it other than from a moral perspective. And this is not really uh, helpful in terms of, you know, attacking corruption and uh, making the system work for the majority, for the many, not the few. So what I, what I did in the book, and, and I basically uh, went to understand why we have adopted this and why this is the only lens through which we see corruption. Because ancient, in addition to the individual corruption, classical, because there's always people that receive, you know, money and favors, this is, has been constant uh, in human history. They define corruption as pertaining to the system as a whole, to the rules of the game. If, and the rules of the game would get corrupted, not that the rules, uh, you know, are edited in a way in the text, if you will, but the people with their own ambition and their own kind of resources gain the system, try to go around the system, try to manipulate the rules. So at the end, the system works for them and not for the majority. And the ancients argued that depending on the system, the system will corrupt to either the power of the few or the power of the many. Of course, the ancient sources that we have are Plato, Aristotle, and others who are elitists. 
thinkers. They're not, you know, thinkers pro-democracy. They were both against democracy because of different reasons. So they theorized political corruption as, as regime-specific, first of all, and saying basically that a democracy or, a, or, a, or an aristocracy would corrupt towards one side or the other, either to the few or the many. And for them, their understanding of democracy was that it was too democratic and therefore it was corrupt. So they basically theorized this idea that corruption pertains to the rules of the game. And Plato famously, that for them, you know, the, the ancients didn't have a separation between what is political and what is really strictly natural. Because for them, remember, we are political animals. And therefore, we realize our nature in the police. So we cannot understand the individual outside of society. Famously, the liberals and people from the, you know, natural law tradition like John Locke would have it. We are both, this, as I tell my students, we are before the state, we're in a kind of hippie community outside, right? That everybody kind of knows the rules and everything kind of works. It's kind of la la land, right? And then money comes in and destroys everything. And, and basically it corrupts the human nature. And we need government to fix that, right? And this is kind of the, the idea that the ancients didn't have. For them, we are always in society and therefore the rules tend to be porous or kind of erode if we have a lot of uh, ambition and people trying to gain this because individuals are very ambitious and creative. Yeah, I really, I really like that sort of genealogy that you give of the term, essentially, a corruption and how you go back to Plato and Aristotle and show that the origins of the term for them, well, Thora is the word that they use, which means essentially decay. And, and, and the way they see corruption of government is as the gradual kind of disintegration, the gradual decay of government. You touched on a, a number of issues there. So let's let's take them kind of one by one. On the one hand, that's an interesting idea that, you know, corruption is not about individuals, it's about systems, it's about a kind of almost natural gradual decay of each system. But as you say, Plato and Aristotle, so the Athenian democracy of their time was kind of the paradigmatic corrupt government. Plato saw it as having been corrupted by, by too much liberty, as you say, and Aristotle thought it had been corrupted by, by too much democracy. And these seem very strange ideas to us of what corruption amounts to. Very different opposite, you might even say, from, from our own ideas of corruption. So why should we seek insight from those political thinkers for how to think about corruption in today's political landscape when their political instincts are just so different from ours? Well, I think, of course, we have these thinkers that are elitists and, you know, come from a different time period in which actually the people have way more power than they have today. If we compare our democracy as a popular government, as a popular, you know, as a government authorized by the people, supposedly governing for the people, you know, and by the people, we need to compare it to other regime types uh, throughout history that are also considered popular governments and see how ours fare, right? So if we take Plato and Aristotle, we would take kind of like the most elitist and conservative of the time in which the people really had power. So if we're talking about Plato being against democracy because he, he had too much liberty. And of course, we're talking about the liberty to be an entrepreneur or to, you know, seek your own profession against hierarchy, against kind of the very caste system that he had in mind, right? And of course, being of the elite, if you are, if you are from the 1% today, your opinions will tend to be against democracy. But that doesn't mean that there, there's insight in your analysis. Because of course, when we have democracy, we have individual liberty, right? And individual liberty allows you to gain the system and also allows you to realize yourself, right? 
So therefore, you need more rules and more kind of vigilance in order to keep that system for, from decaying. So if you have a very kind of authoritarian hierarchical system, it's much easier to keep the boundaries tight, if you will. But if we have a democracy in which people can really do what they want, then he says, well, it will all go, you know, to hell, right? In the sense that everybody's going to stick their own rules. Everybody's going to have, try to impose their own constitution, he says. Women will have their opinions. Animals will run wild. Everything will go to chaos. And of course, democracy is chaotic, but this is kind of where creativity brings from. So that kind of liberty was very offensive to him, right? And and the same idea from Aristotle, but in a, in a, in a manner that is very insightful for today, because for Aristotle, the problem of democracy is that, that the people really could rule. For him, there's four types of democracy. Three of them were constitutional, were considered good, because the people have the formal power, the formal right to engage in political action, but they were busy plowing the field. So they were not actually doing it, right? So that's fantastic, because you have, you're open, like, like we, our societies are today, everybody can vote, everybody can run for office. The reality is that nobody does, only a few does, and always the traditional few or the the few that are co-opted by machinery, right, from the party. So the reality is that we, as common people, do not have much power in our democratic society. And Aristotle was living in a in a democracy that was actually full, because we need to remember that Pericles famously decided to pay people to go to the assembly. So attending the assembly and serving by um, exerting and exercising political judgment and other kinds of power, juridical, executive, and legislative, you were paid by the day. Before that, you were on your own dime. And of course, the working classes cannot just afford to, you know, leave the, the fields uncloud and kind of go, you know, to, to the assembly and spend, you know, from sunrise to sunset debating, right? At the end, it was the monopoly of the privileged few. So when Pericles did that, first he allowed for the inclusion of the people inside the assembly for the first time, right? It was a democracy before, but for the first time, it became a material democracy, a real democracy. And for him, this was awful because then you have the people trying to redistribute wealth and trying to make things more equal. And before you had, you know, a formal equality only. And the system was preserved. So that is very insightful for our times because we are also a popular government in which, you know, it's formally a democracy, but really we don't have any power to control our representatives. We have created the, this, this fiction of representation uh, that basically we can select others that will basically make us present in the assembly as, it, as, as, as we can talk about. We are all present in that assembly in Congress. And that's not really true. Representative is just a fiction, representation. So for the Athenian democracy, people needed to be there. So for our time, what does it mean to the people to be there and be able to control the elite that will be, you know, willing to accommodate the rules of the game for our own advantage because nobody's watching, right? So this is the point that when we have a democracy, the boundaries that control individual ambition, right, and the gaming of the system are weak and need to be reinforced from time to time because human creativity makes them porous and erode. And I think it through the um, kind of uh, physics, through the law of thermodynamics as a way that we have energy, individual liberty within our system. We allow for the maximal amount of liberty in our systems, and that inevitably will corrupt the boundaries of our system. So uh, that is kind of an insight from, you know, physics that we need to apply to politics in a way and think about it in a structural term. That's another question I had about how different Plato and Aristotle think about corruption in politics and how we think about it. So for them, as you said, it's almost no different from the natural realm, right? Plato says that decay and corruption is something that awaits everything that has come to be. And Aristotle says that all change is essentially a kind of type of decay, a passing away, a kind of corruption. 
But we don't think of politics as just part of the natural realm, right? We think of the human realm as quite separate to the natural realm, and that comes with you know all sorts of problems. But is there not a danger in going back to this kind of naturalizing political corruption in some way, making it seem as something inevitable and natural aging and decay and death, therefore something we just have to kind of accept as part of life in the same way that we accept, you know, getting old and dying as part of life, something we can't do much about. It's just part of the natural order of things. So isn't there a danger? and kind of naturalizing corruption like that? Well, it could be a danger if we think about acceptance, kind of like Good Samaritan or this kind of like Buddhist, just take the world as it is. Humans don't do that. We don't accept death and decay in our body. We want to change that. So that, that's why medicine has prolonged life. So today, people live almost to 100 years old. Before, when the Athenians were alive, they, at 30 years old, they were, you know, gone. Well, Socrates lived for a long, long while until the Athenian put him to death. But the idea that we don't, as humans, accept the world as it is. We take the world. We manipulate the world. We create infrastructure for ourselves. So for me, as a realist thinker, we need to understand that decay is inherent to the system, not because it is just kind of like rotting from within. It's because we have human ingenuity. And therefore, we would try to make the rules, you know, bend the rules, break the rules, right? So therefore, we need that insight allow us to prepare. So if you give humans the freedom, they'll try and do it, basically. If you give humans the, yeah, the, the space to sort of play with the rules and, and bend them to their own interests, that's just... That's just part of human nature as well. Is that, is that part of your view? Yes, yes. And therefore, we need to prepare for it. Because the realism is that we need to understand that human nature is like this. And that is good, in a way, because we have ingenuity and creativity. We make things. We figure it out, out of crisis, right? And with problems, we fix them. We prolonged our life. So if we want a republic that can be endured, and have this liberty for all and be respectful of liberty and equality because equality is necessary for liberty uh, and to not have, you know, oppressive, you know, hierarchies. We need to prepare for it. And for that, we need institutions, rules and procedures that are geared toward containing this ambition that, and, and the eroding of the structures. But if we don't do that and we and, and why do we think that we basically we don't think about um, political corruption in structural terms It's because our founders were all these men that thought of the enlightenment, right? That thought that they had like the, you know, they had created the perfect system. And basically they created this constitution almost with no reform procedures. Of course, we're not talking about the UK. The majority of uh, the, the democracies around the world have a written constitution and it almost cannot be changed. So there are entrenched rules and there's a system of separation of powers that have become hegemonic. And that doesn't change. People don't think outside the box. We think that we moderns have figured out a way out of the cycle of corruption. And therefore, we just cannot think outside of the box and create a new system. But as Aristotle says, every change is a form of decay and a form of new beginning. So we are in a moment in uh, almost 200 years of representative democracy. In the U.S. has a little bit more, 240-something years. But basically, we are in a moment in which our structures have decayed. Uh, allowing for the 1% to really be a rentier class in the whole structure. They are the ones gaining more than 30 or 40% even of the GDP of all the countries. So we clearly have a problem because the structure, the political, juridical structure of society has allowed for the rich to get richer and is not going to stop in a way. It is progressive. So we see that our democracies do not work for the many. That is a fact. So we need to prepare for it. And therefore, we need to create a structure that allows you to to control these tendencies and constantly be updating the system. And that is one of the problems with the founding, that they believed 
that they were perfect and therefore they cannot change. So they have deprived the natural response to structural change. People rise up, people voice their oppression, they express themselves and say, this is happening. But the system has been closed and the representative structure has not allowed for the channeling of those demands. Of course, I mean, this is more of a political science, I guess, discussion to have about the fact that, you know, amendments to the Constitution seem to be a lot easier in the past than, than they are now. And, you know, there were those structures in place, but they're not working really anymore. But I had a different question that was triggered by something that you just said about sort of seeing corruption almost like as a product of human ingenuity. And I was, again, wondering whether there isn't a danger in sort of totally demoralizing corruption like that and taking away anything around, you know, human responsibility or moral responsibility when it comes to corruption and just making it this 100% kind of structural systemic question. Because, you know, doesn't that let people like Donald Trump off the hook? Because, you know, what could he do? He's just a very clever, ingenious person. And he found himself in a system that allowed him to play and bend the rules as, as he so fit and you know what can we do? you know it's not his problem it's it's the system's problem but surely we want to preserve a sense in which well not not everyone who becomes president does that and we want to retain some level of that kind of moral instinct that we have that it is about you know the person that occupies that position it is about moral responsibility how does your account balance those two things Yes. So my, my account comes to complement it. I don't want to uh, get any anybody off the hook here. So, But the problem is that they are getting off the hook. <laughs> so uh, you, you bring in Donald Trump. So he famously, in one of his last speeches at a rally, he said, people have been criticizing me because I don't pay taxes. And I don't, you know, I, I, you know, I have all this, this money, but I, but it's like, I would be a fool if I don't take advantage of the rules of the game. I'm actually, you know, I am clever. So that narrative is already installed. I'm not bringing it. <laughs> so what, what I try to say is that having an individual account of corruption that looks only at the nexus between the private and the public and tries to trace the money is not enough. We cannot put people in jail. And if we, even if we could do that, there's, it's not, this problem is not going to disappear because it's a problem is an institutional problem. It's a rules-based problem. It's a procedural problem that we need to attack from a structural perspective. Because if the rules of the game are rigged and people are taking advantage of those rules, then you cannot change the structure and the rules of the game by putting people in jail. That's not going to change anything. So I'm just going to put an example of my own country, Chile, which is very very much in a parallel in terms of corruption because of the neoliberal structure and the insulation of the representatives from the public. So there was a, a law that called the, the law uh, on, on fishing that basically gave monopoly rights to, for extraction to seven big companies that were doing the fishing in Chile and deprived hundreds of artisanal fishermen of quotas to fish. So basically starving them. And this was a law that on its face was corrupt. The guy, one of the guys that was one of the most, the, the people that pushed for this law was a senator. This senator today, you know, they trace the money, whatever, he's in jail. But what happened with the other majority in the Congress that actually voted for the law that everybody knows that is corrupt, right? This is one thing. So we had one bad apple that is put in jail like a scapegoat, right? And everybody knows it's okay, it's done, right? But all the other guys are sitting in Congress and the law hasn't been repealed because an act of individual corruption doesn't mean that the law and all the policies that were accepted were corrupt. There's no link in a way uh, juridical or even theoretically. So that's why we need to bring this layer of structural corruption to understand that law can be corrupt. And that is almost an oxymoron for us, that 
if corruption is something that is illegal, then the law cannot be corrupt. But in reality, a law can be made, tailor-made, to uh, enrich and benefit the few at expenses of the many, so at, at detriment of the many. So therefore, in the ancient understanding, that would be corrupt. And we need to start naming that as corrupt because we don't have the, even the vocabulary, not even the, the frame of mind to do that. We think it is an immoral act, but we need to detach it from morality. Of course, it is immoral, but that's not the point. We, we, we cannot attack the structural problems with moral answers, okay? It needs to be a structural answer. As always, this podcast is created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest-running public philosophy journal. The spring issue of The Philosopher is out, tackling a timeless and timely topic, the relationship between authority and knowledge. Heidi Graswick writes on oppression and the authority of science, Jana Bashevik on epistemic authority and the free-nose guy problem, and James Kidd on character, vices and authority. To read these and many other great articles, including one by yours truly on freedom and the post-pandemic future, go to www.thephilosopher1923.org to order your copy now. I have one final question about the sort of Aristotle-Plato framework of thinking about corruption in, in these terms of decay. And my question is, doesn't this idea of corruption lead to the belief that things were always better in the past? So if the way to make sense of our current political system is as, well, it's a corruption of a previous instantiation of it that was much better, purer, more perfect political system. That seems to imply a kind of nostalgia for the past, which, as we've seen in contemporary politics, can be quite dangerous. And it also seems to be false, right? I mean, if I'm following some of the things that you're saying, you know, sure, our society is, is you know, has inequalities that are increasing and it's becoming oligarchic in many ways. But we would never dream to say that when the United States of America were founded, it was a more, <laughs> a purer, more egalitarian, less corrupt political system. Surely, in many ways, our contemporary system is, is a huge improvement on that of the Constitution as it was founded. So how do we make sense of the fact that, in many ways, our political structures are hugely improved than what they were hundreds of years ago, but also then think of them as corruptions of past political structures? Well, I think we need to understand that there are two ways of looking at corruption, the conservative and the kind of progressive way, right? So the conservative, which is kind of Aristotle and Plato, they have that nostalgia, right? Because they have, they, they were brought up in a more hierarchical society in which they were in power. Uh, so before, you know, democracy was an, uh, an oligarchic regime in which they were on top. So if we have people that are on top and now they have to share political power with the common people, with the commoners, it's going to be terrible. And of course, you're going to be longing from something from the past. And this kind of inclusion is going to be seen as corruption. Right. It is the corruption of an oligarchic system, because by bringing democracy, you are corrupting the oligarchic foundations of the system and you are changing the system into a democracy. So by democratizing, you are mutating the system. And that's what Aristotle saw, that basically every decay of one system is the beginning of another. So therefore, it is kind of this progression from oligarchy to democracy, which he said was awful. Right. From our perspective, I take more this, the, the thought of Machiavelli. Machiavelli was, uh, you know, a, a thinker of the Renaissance in Florence, and he is one of the rare thinkers that was not part of the elite. He came from a good kind of like aristocratic family who was in debt. So basically, he was a commoner in terms of more material terms, and he couldn't rule. He was a secretary. He was not a politician. 
So he basically theorized corruption as linked to socioeconomic inequality. And for him, it's not about longing for the foundations in a way, because there is a reverence for a foundation that is based on equality. But for him, the corruption and the good government is in the making all the time. It's a dynamic system. It's a never-ending system. It's not that we, there was something on the path that we need to go back and preserve. It's that we need to always update the system in order to keep it from becoming monopolized by the few and basically depriving the many, the plebeians, of their liberty. So therefore, there is kind of an understanding there that we need to kind of uh, unearth and, and today, I think there is a view of, as I said before, of inequality being this natural thing, that it just occurs, that because that, that people earning, you know, CEOs earning 400 times or 3,000 times the wages or, or their, their salaries of their workers, it's just normal. There's only an ethical feeling, but there's no kind of a, an, an understanding that that is perverting our democracy. So the question is, if oligarchy would corrupt, quote unquote, into a democracy, what is our democracy corrupting into in the sense that what is being corrupted and where are we going? And of course, when we are corrupting, there's always two forms. We're going to either going back as making America great again or going forward in kind of equalizing our system and basically giving for the first time in modern history people and institutions. And I think that is something that is worth thinking about. And uh, we, we should grapple with because our system is not going to be better just because we have a better leader on, in office. Uh, the leaders come and go, but the system keeps on reproducing itself. And that is an, an insight we need to kind of apply. And the progressive understanding of corruption is that we need to deal with it in this realist manner and that we need a counterpower for government, that government cannot police themselves. And something that you brought, you know, uh, about, you know, making America great again, of course, going back to the founding, is that Trump wanted to go to the slave South kind of mindset in which the whites had their own means of production, which were the slaves that they owned. However, when the founding happened, we need to remember that 70% of Americans were owners of the means of production. They were farmers, yeoman farmers. And the framers were very afraid that, of course, this was going to change because they saw France in which it was the opposite. Basically, that 70 or 90% even of the people didn't own their means of production and they were basically servants. So it was quite the opposite. So it is the framework that the framers put on in the United States that didn't preserve that equality and actually allowed for the people to uh, be deprived of their land due to debt and other uh, problems that happened right after the founding. And now we are today at the levels of the ancien regime, which America was not founded on that degree of inequality. So, of course, we don't need to embrace a conservative idea of make America great again, but we need to understand that we were equal at what some point, at least in the new world. There was more equality than we had today. So there is something that we need to kind of like take into account when we think about corruption and where we're coming from and where we're going. Right. But that, so, so that still involves thinking of a past real instance of a politics that was better than what is or or less corrupt than what it is now. It isn't like we have an ideal of what democracy is and that ideal is being corrupted. It's a real instantiation of it that has been corrupted. Is that how we think about it? Well, yeah, I see it both ways. One is contingent, because in the United States, as I said, there was equality, different from Europe. There was equality in the Tocqueville famously came and recorded that. But uh, this kind of equality and was based also kind of on a political organ. There was the town halls as a kind of a local assemblies of these yeoman farmers who 
were um, basically getting together and petitioning the government and forcing, and some some of the state constitutions were way more progressive than what we have today. So the right to rebel, which famously is put forward by John Locke, even if you know it, it, it doesn't follow through in his own you know model, um, was enshrined in many American state constitutions. And that was superseded by the federal constitution, federal constitution, which didn't have that. The right to vote is not even in the constitution. It's only, you know, addressed when uh, thought about, you know, something that is you're being discriminated against, but not really as a kind of fundamental right. So um, um, the, the founding of, you know, the United States was not based on the actual material uh, institutions of power. They actually was created, the, you know, the executive, the Congress and the judiciary were kind of created from thin air. They did They exist before kind of colonial institutions, but they basically uh, wrote it on, on, on paper and made it. The town hall existed and those were not institutionalized. So Thomas Jefferson, who was in Paris at the time and didn't was not involved in the making of the Constitution, the writing, he lamented that why didn't they do this? Why didn't they give the common people institutional power and just gave power to, you know, this, you know, representative government? And he was very good friends with Thomas Paine and with the Marquis of Condorcet in France, who actually put forward a system of primary assemblies as a way for the people to engage in real politics and have, you know, mandates and have a veto power over government. So there, is, there was an understanding that the people themselves needed an institution, as it was in the ancient Roman times, and, and that they had their own plebeian council, a council that in which, you know, the nobles were not allowed to engage, were not allowed to uh, uh, vote on and even voice their opinion. It was only for commoners. And today, our democracies do not have that. But at the moment of the founding, it was discussed and it was omitted. So for me, there is a way of coming, going back, but not to a really empirical thing, but actually going back to that juncture and say, well, there was this idea of primary assemblies that it could not be done because there was not the technology to it. Imagine, you know, you needed to communicate from one council to the other, one primary assembly to the other by horse, right, and by letter. Today, we have apps. We have instant communication. Everybody could, we, now with the pandemic, we have Zoom. So in all this kind of like a, a digital communication that allow us to actually engage in political judgment from below. And we can actually create the system. So for me, the only way to tackle systemic corruption is going back to those kind of institutional insights, institutional innovations that we need to rethink for the 21st century. Should we say a little bit about how our current idea of corruption came about. So as you explained in your book, after this ancient Greek philosophy phase where people were thinking of corruption in these more structural ways, we, we move into the Roman period and that's where the idea of corruption gets its kind of contemporary meaning of being more of a kind of personal moral vice, being something that is instantiated in a political action of an individual, that it's whether you're bribing someone or perverting the course of justice in some way. So thinkers like Cicero are involved in this, who allude to political corruption as a situation where all sense of shame is lost, which of course <laughs> rings many contemporary bells. Can you tell us a little bit about how this concept of corruption transforms from the ancient Greek idea of decay to this Roman uh, conception of, of it being an individual vice? Yes. So basically, the, in, in Roman times, also the idea of political decay as systemic was enduring. Right. But the great innovation of Cicero, right, in the end of at the late Roman Republic was to reconceptualize corruption, the political structural corruption, not the individual that was, you know, permanent, but basically reduce the structural corruption 
to individual corruption, not individual in the sense that any individual. For him, it was the elite who were corrupt. And therefore, for, because he was an elitist thinker, and we need to you know, go back to the, the context of the time in which we have in the late Roman Republic, a plebeian element, the plebeian council, they had their exclusive representatives, the tribunes of the plebs, and they had the initiative for law and veto and do a basically a sovereignty in a way, not permanent because the Senate was in control of the finance. And as we know, money is always, you know, the purse, the power of the purse is the most important. However, the plebeians, the common people had the initiative. So one of the initiatives that they, you know, put forward was an agrarian law, the famous agrarian laws, because with all the conquests of Rome, there was a lot of land. And basically the land was being hoarded by the nobles who were in the Senate. And the commoners said, well, we are fighting your war and therefore we need to redistribute this property. And we cannot just redistribute for ourselves. We also have these new colonies that have become part of Rome that are not really Roman, but they're basically plebeian soldiers that have fought these wars. So basically, we need to redistribute to them too. We, we need to deprive the nobles who have hoarded this land and redistribute. Of course, legally, they had that power. However, what happened in factual terms, the tribunes, the, the Gracchi brothers, were murdered in the street, targeted by the Senate. So basically, in that moment, we can see that the structure didn't hold, that the, the late Republic was corrupt because the Senate and the nobles were not abound by the laws of the system. They didn't respect plebeian authority. It's today, it's like, for example, Congress passed a law in the, and the president says like, no, it's not going to happen. This is the same thing. The Senate and the nobles just kind of like a, through violence um, closed that uh, progressive streak. So therefore, we have this kind of corruption that comes from the disavowing of the rules. And Cicero comes in in this moment. And for him, source of corruption was the noblemen who were being all liberal in a way and kind of not abiding by the rules of their ancients. So the idea of ancient morality was not being respected. And now everything goes, basically. All shame is lost in the sense that the elites are not really good role models. And for him, the only way to fix the structural problem of this republic that was corrupting from within was not to change the rules, was not to empower the people to basically make the Senate... Change your elite. Yeah, to basically educate, re-educate the elite into being moral. Because for him, morality will kind of trickle down into the commoners and then all will be good. That is the idea of corruption that survived and was kind of picked up by the Christian uh, tradition, Augustine, Aquinas, you know, and the civic humanist tradition uh, that basically translated into the individual moral sin of corruption that is today made in a juridical form that it are individuals who are the leaders who are bad. And, and in a way, Cameron and Boris Johnson would say, you know, they are leaders are bad and immoral, and therefore it's their fault that the you know, system is corrupting. But no, they're just an expression of the structural corruption. We cannot pin it down on them, right? It's like in, in the U.S., not because Trump is out of office, the U.S. is in a better place structurally. Of course, there's leadership that can always change things here and there. But to really revert the patterns of accumulation and dispossession that we have reproduced in our system, we really need to have structural reform. And for that, we need the constituent power, the popular power to be involved and not just at the, at the moment of leadership, because the president needs to negotiate with the Congress. And the Congress is in the grip of oligarchy right now. So therefore, it's very difficult to be progressive if you have the constituted powers against you. 
And you cannot just bypass those powers because that would make you a dictator. Why did the idea of corruption as this kind of more individualistic conception of personal vice or the juridical conception of corruption as just bending the rules or breaking the rule, why did that version survive over the structural one? What was it that made it our intellectual inheritance, as it were? Well, in my book, I explore this a little bit with, with a proposal, understanding that all our constitutional models that basically were based on these ancient elitist thinkers and were basically developed. And today we have constitutional democracies. This is part of an elitist constitutional tradition that we have thought of the only constitutional tradition. And basically the one, the tradition that I try to develop in the book and in my work is the plebeian tradition, the tradition that gives popular power preeminence in the system in the sense that understands that the commoners the people, the, the common people are in a weaker position in society, that we basically authorize and we give power to the representative government to rule. And they are corrupt and corrupting the system. So therefore, we don't have any control over them. So therefore, we need to give institutional power to the common people in order to counter power to this government. So I think because of the majority of authors and thinkers that we basically base this elitist uh, uh, conservative constitutional model are the only ones that survived. And of course, only kind of people from the elite can really dedicate their lives to constitutional theory, if you think about it, right? So that tradition, in, in the sense that even if we understand that the people need a role, we cannot give them the final say on the system because, you know, the people are ignorant and, and are just the masses and they don't know anything and it don't matter, are the elites who need to have the final say. So in our understanding of good models, we have the judges as the final say, the judges who are factually from the richest 2% of the population. So therefore, their worldview is very much elitist. So that elitist strand became hegemonic. And that's why we have this idea of individual corruption. Because if you thought it in, in the way that I'm proposing it as a structural um, manner, you would need to empower the common people institutionally. There's no other way to kind of remain vigilant because it juridically cannot go, you cannot go that road, basically. So either you empower the people or you basically preserve a system that will corrupt. This takes me back to the very first episode of this podcast that I did with David Runciman on, on representative democracy. And one of my questions to him was whether representative democracy is always inherently elitist. And it sounds like what you're saying is essentially the answer to that is yes. But if that is the case, doesn't that challenge your sort of narrative of corruption? Isn't that just saying then, look, representative democracy is inherently corrupt in some way from the get-go? It's not that it decays from this kind of ideal state of representative democracy in the beginning and then it's going well for a while and after a while people start bending the rules and we get to where we are now. It's that it's already a system where power is given to an elite by by the many and therefore, you know, it's no surprise then that they divide the, the share in ways that is that is also unequal. So if that's what you're saying, if, you, if what you're saying is that essentially, you know, our system of democracy, representative democracy, this kind of mediating uh, of our popular will via our representatives is inherently problematic in that way, inherently corrupt. Doesn't that challenge the view of corruption as this decay model that we were talking about earlier? Well, I don't think that our systems are inherently corrupt. I think that we have a misnomer in a way. We, we, we hadn't, we, we, a mislabeling, right? Um, I think of our systems as elected aristocracies, if we think about it as, as the, when, the, when the leaders really govern for the majority, like in the Scandinavian countries, for example, in which 
really the leaders have, you know, a commitment to the common good. And you see factually that the majority of the people are well off, okay? And are, you know, things are being redistributed in a manner that at least is minimal, right? That That is basic. Well, that, well, they have a tradition, they have a culture, you know, they, they, there are cultural elements that kind of tame and that preserve the aristocratic elements. Because if you think about a, a, an elected aristocracy, uh, aristoi is the government of the best. So this is the idea that we, as citizens, we select the best among us to govern, right? So that is the ideal of our democracies, an elected aristocracy. So an elected aristocracy, in, if we think, think about the ancients, will decay into an elected oligarchy, which is not governing the elites, are not governing, are not the best, you know, are not governing for the good of the many, but actually for their own sake or for their own cronies and, and you know, their own class. And this is what is happening. So our democracies are called democracies, but are not really democracies. If we compare it to, you know, other popular governments throughout history, are really today oligarchic democracies. So the question is, what is oligarchic democracy going to transform into? Right. And this is the point, because we already decayed. We don't have a good government because that would mean that at least the majority of the population would be be benefiting from the system equally or at least in, in a relatively equally manner with, with, with the elite. But that is not happening. So I think the there is no we, we cannot think about democracy uh, as uh, really in in, in in sense of like uh, the people ruling. And there is this idea that we have had democracy from the beginning. But that is not true either. If we look at the first democracy in the world, which is the United States. The word democracy was only used in a derogatory manner in the, you know, 3,000 pages of notes that James Madison took of that secret convention, by the way. So they were open to say all the barbarities about the common people that they, they could, and they did. And, and, and the United States was called a republic for 100 years. And it's only at the end of the uh, 19th century, the beginning of the 20th, in which democracy is rehabilitated into a good concept. So it is kind of took over, but it doesn't mean that we, that the United States and all other representative governments are democracies. They are representative governments or elected aristocracies or elected oligarchy. So before, if we're going to, is that oligarchy, as we, again, if we take Plato, if oligarchy decays into democracy. So we need to think how to democratize the system that we have for real in order to mutate into a different system that would be better. In Plato's you know, sense, it would be worse. <laughs> but in our sense, to have more democracy would be better. So following this model, and we're assuming that our sort of main political structure is liberal democracy, as you describe in, in your book, there are two ways in which you can imagine those being corrupted. One is to corrupt the kind of democracy side and, and go the way that you're saying that it becomes a kind of oligarchy. It's a question about whether you can have a liberal oligarchy. I guess I guess maybe in theory you can, uh, whether in practice you can is a different question. But then there's the other side, which is the illiberal democracy, which is another way in which we're witnessing a lot of regimes like in Hungary, for example, and you know, arguably under Trump, that was also a danger in the United States of it becoming a, an illiberal democracy where the majority ruled in on paper by having voted for the government at the time, but having an instantiating rules and laws that would actually undermine the, the individual liberties of, of its citizens. Do you see the dangers being in both directions? Do you think it's more in the direction of oligarchy? And, and why, why is that? Well, the problem is the labeling, because basically, again, what we have today is not democracy. So if we change Hungary from being an illiberal democracy to being an illiberal oligarchy, that makes more sense because we, it's an elected oligarchy, right? We have the people who rule and the people actually authorize them. 
So there is an authorization of oligarchy, and that is illiberal in the sense that it will go against individual rights of especially immigrants or progressives or dissidents. And of course, today we live in a liberal oligarchic democracy in the majority of countries around the world. So the oligarchs basically get their rent legally (laughs) and keep enriching themselves legally while we enjoy individual liberty. But these individual liberties are only formal. So only if you have resources, you can enjoy really your rights. But if you are poor, you have no resources, or you are from a minority, the, the probability that you will be able to exercise and enjoy your individual rights within a liberal oligarchic system like what we have today is very low. So only if you are well off, you can really be free. But if you are oppressed, you are in a similar position as the indentured servants of the past when kind of wage slavery, you know, talking about this in this term. But in, in other, and this is the kind of the challenge, because if we are in liberal oligarchs, then we can corrupt into illiberal oligarchs. So we have liberal oligarchs that corrupt into illegal oligarchy. So we get just is oligarchy without individual rights. And that's what we have in Hungary. And that's what we have in many places in Europe that is emerging. Basically, this ethno-nationalist current that is not really democratic because the ethno-nationalist current is never a majority as a whole. It's always excludes. Because if we think about the European scenario in which the majority of the working classes today, the underclasses, are migrants that do not have individual rights within the system that could be expelled at any moment. So we are living in an upper height system that we cannot talk about. We are already mutating into something very, very dark with refugee camps being very similar to concentration camps with, you know, in the United States, separations of families and migrants. All these things are happening. So as we, if we think about corruption in structural terms, we see that this kind of Corrupting tendencies, we can see them everywhere in the sense that are illiberal things happening of violating human rights while you have the liberal rule of law. So this is the dichotomy that we have the rule of law, but there are illegal things that are going against individual rights within our system. So we cannot just pin it down in democracy because that tends to demonize democracy. Well, the people are, you know, authoritarian and they are, they elected this leader and this is terrible. This is terrible. So therefore democracy is terrible. And no, we are living in oligarchies. We don't have democracy today. We elect leaders and these leaders govern us. And this is the same that we had in the Roman Republic, by the way. All magistrates were elected. There's nothing new about that. So elections is not democracy. Elections is just a mechanism. And actually, historically, elections was an elitist mechanism. It is lottery what is the mechanism of democracy. So we are all backwards. And so we need to kind of rethink the system from the right kind of conceptions and categories and not kind of being reproducing the same labeling that has obscured the domination happening in our liberal constitutional regimes. So what's to be done, Camilla? Even if we say, okay, we recognize that corruption is has a different nature from how we usually think of it, we need to think of it structurally, systematically, what can we do to prevent it other than passing new laws that try and prevent those kind of structures from coming about? But then we have the same problem. Again, we have laws that people can distort and play with and try and cheat. And then we have judges that will judge whether those laws are being applied well or not. And are we falling into the same illusion that you said the founding fathers of the United States had fallen into where we imagine we can come up with a legal structure that prevents corruption, but, you know, ultimately that's never possible. Well, Machiavelli says that when you have 
republic that has been corrupted, laws will not do any good because laws basically will be kind of eaten by the same kind of tendencies and will not do any good. And actually laws will be the product of oligarchy, not of democracy. So therefore, those laws will never kind of go to the core of corruption. For him, the only way to get a republic back to its beginnings, and in a way, it beginnings instead of like equality and liberty, this beginnings, and kind of going away from oligarchy and the self-serving elite, is to empower the common people in order to kind of react to this abuse, to this domination periodically. So for him, one thing is to revisit and have a kind of a constituent process, constituent moment in which the people are involved. And today, of course, for him, it was only like the legislator, the one that comes and kind of creates this model. But for him, this constituent process, either by the one or the many, in a way we can, we can interpret in that, in that way, should come to pass. Because you cannot change decaying, corrupt system by little amendments here and there, nibbling around the edges, right? You need structural, so structural problems uh, request and demand structural reform. So for him, the only way to do that... So what would that look like? Yes, the only way to do that is to have common institutions. Uh, so for him, it was a, basically periodically to have kind of a constituent moment every 10 years, because he says kind of every decade when people have good laws, people at the beginning, they abide by the law, but then they kind of like go around it and then they are not punished, but they go around it a little bit more and then they make laws for their own benefit, custom made. So in 10 year past, the, the people just forget about morality and what is a good republic. So we need to remind, he says, we need to go back to a founding moment in which we remind the elites about the power of the people and about the also the violence that the people can do to the elite, putting him in jail, putting him to death, right? All these things are, are kind of exemplary punishments that you need to do. So we need the kind of a reckoning, right? And in addition of the reckoning... So new constitution? A new constitution. A new constitution. But you can do that not by kind of like basically like a regular constitution assembly. You can do that by He's the proposer of this kind of like more composite or mosaic kind of, con of constitutionalism in which you include a new actor, a new institution with the power to change kind of the dynamics of the game. So for him, you cannot just spend your political capital, try to destroy the institutions that you have. So kind of like erasing the constitution that we have and you make a new one, but actually bring a new agent of change into the system in order for everything to have a different dynamic, to change it from within by including a new player. And the new player for us needs to be the common people. So we need to create an infrastructure in which the people themselves can have some power. So a division of labor, representative government governs, we pay good salaries to them to actually do the government. But we have some power to veto laws, to initiate laws that are not being discussed, and to kind of be a tiebreaker to that we cannot just give the judges who are appointed by the same constituted powers to have the final say, because historically they have not been very progressive. They come and sanction what is already happening, you know, in the real world. But we need to empower the people. And I'm just going to finish with this saying that in my own country, Chile, we are actually in an ongoing constituent process right now that started with an uprising in October of 2019 because of the, you know, increase of the fare of the metro. But at the end, we have lived for 30 years in a system in which neoliberalism was constitutionalized for the first time. So it was not about some rules and some policies, but it actually in the constitution that you needed a supermajority in order to change. So it didn't never change, right? So we had a system of 30 years in which the rich got 
even richer. And today we have uh, 11 uh, billionaires in the Forbes list that we didn't have 20 years ago. And the majority of the population are precarious. So they're responding to this generalized corruption by organizing from the ground up. So today we have councils being established, self-convoked throughout the country, trying to pitch in with ideas and demands that will be placed in the constitution. So there is a struggle between your own representative system in which we elect others to write the constitution and therefore the power play and the party system is there and the people have little access to that. And the popular track in which the people themselves are saying, we don't want that. The representatives are all corrupt. We have come to the point that they need all to go. And therefore, we're going to take politics into our own hands. And therefore, there is a chance that a council system could, in a way, be institutionalized with binding power in this new constitutional structure, and that we could move from a corrupt oligarchic democracy into what I have called a plebeian democracy, a democracy in which the people, the common people, have the final say in things that pertain to their own liberty. And not like today that we have the judges deciding for ourselves, in which we have infantilized, basically patronized the system that the people and the people need to become political agents and not just consumers of political platforms and ideologies. And I'd love to ask you loads of questions about all that and how, how one would go about it. But I think we need to sort of wrap up our conversation here. What would uh, be a, a book apart from your book, which I recommend to anyone to read, Systemic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for Anti-Oligarchic Republic, in which you go into more detail about how to implement some of these things. What would be a book that you recommend to someone to read for thinking about corruption under this different paradigm rather than thinking of it as an individual kind of problem? Yes, there's a few authors that talk about this, and they, as I said, say in the book, they they don't go to the length that kind of like I go in terms of like it is a constitutional problem. But one of the books that really illuminated and kind of like do, does the research on the um, system of elections as a system that actually corrupts democracy is Lawrence Lessig, Republic Law. It is an old book from 2011, but I think it is very worth revisiting because he basically traces how the influence comes from great corporations to the different institutions and basically allows for the system to legalize corruption, which is kind of like the mechanism through which this happens. It is not the corruption of the system as a whole, but as a is a form of institutional corruption, which is at the core of our system, because basically the elections is the mechanism through which we allocate political power. So therefore, if that mechanism allows for power to be corrupted, we're in serious trouble. So if you want to really know about how the Republic already was lost in 2011, right, <laughs> not just with Trump, right, it's an ongoing process, go and read Lawrence Lessig's uh, book, who is a pioneer in the, in the term institutional corruption and thinking about this term. Camila Vergara, thank you very much. Thank you for having me and for the great conversation. Thank you to Camila Vergara for this really exhilarating episode. And many thanks to the Philosopher's Editor, Anthony Morgan, for help with the research for this episode. Olive Richardson helped with the editing, and music was by Rowan McIlvride. Let me know what you think of our new intro music. Uh, I'd be curious to have your reactions. You can message me on Twitter at News Philosophy. And if you enjoyed this episode, as always, please take a minute and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Our next episode will be airing on Monday the 31st of May, a year after the murder of George Floyd, and I'll be talking to Olufemi Taiwo, Professor of African Studies at Cornell University, about why the United States need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I'm Alexis Papazoglu, 
And this was The Philosopher in the News. Speak to you soon.